Hello and welcome to the Fit Leaders Podcast, the podcast for leaders seeking sustainable success. I'm your host, David Chinsky, founder of the Institute for Leadership Fitness and creator of Fit Leaders Academy. Join me as we explore how leaders help their organizations move from confusion to clarity, from fear to confidence, from frustration to effectiveness, and from overwhelm to vitality. In today's podcast, we're going to talk about how to convince others to follow our lead. How do we win others over? How do we get someone to support an idea, a project, a program? You know, all of us are in sales. We sell every day. We sell products. We sell ideas. We sell the need for funding. Sometimes we believe that the word sell is is a four-letter word, a bad word, when in fact selling is just something that all of us have to do if we're going to get people to follow us and do the things that we think are in the best interest of our team and of the organization. Former Chrysler Chairman Lee Iacocca once noted that you can have brilliant ideas, but if you can't get them across, your ideas won't get you anywhere. So it's not enough simply to have good ideas if you can't enroll others in supporting you. So I want to talk a little bit about some strategies for increasing the likelihood that we get to yes. Whenever we are selling an idea, a program, a need for funding, whatever it is that we are trying to get our boss, our colleagues, or our fellow team members to support. The first technique or strategy is something that I call sell the solution. Many years ago, I was coaching a chief financial officer for an organization. And as part of my coaching process, I always meet with the executive sponsor or the boss of the person I'm coaching. So in this case, it was the CEO of the organization. And when I was trying to ascertain what his expectations were for my coaching assignment, the first thing he said to me was, David, please help our CFO get to the point more quickly. He talked about how the CFO would often take 15, 20 minutes in a conversation, giving all kinds of background, going through all kinds of charts before getting to the main ask. And during this time, the CEO often would lose interest, would find that his mind started roaming and thinking about other issues. And once the CFO actually came out with what the ask was, the CEO realized that had that come out in the first five seconds, the CEO might have just said yes or no, rather than having to sit through and listen to a very, very long presentation. Senior leaders often don't have the time to listen to all of the details, and and often they don't need all the details. Sometimes they just need to hear what it is that we're asking, and they're able to say yes or no. If we take too long, particularly if we're in a meeting with executives, sometimes they will tune out, or sometimes they may actually have prearranged someone to come in to say that there's a phone call for them. I don't know if this has ever happened to you or if you've ever done it to someone yourself, although this is a more polite way of exiting a conversation if you don't believe that it's in your best interest to stick around. 
And often there really is no message. No one is calling you. It's just a way for you to say, excuse me, I I need to go. Now, if you're engaged in the conversation and someone comes in and does the same thing, you're likely to say, please take a message or please tell them that I'll call them back when I'm out of this meeting. So selling the solution means starting with the ask. Let the person know up front what it is that you need so that they know what you are there to talk about so that you don't lose their interest. Now, sometimes we may get a very quick yes or no, and sometimes the leader or executive that we're speaking to might say, I'm intrigued, please continue. So we still need to be prepared for the conversation. We need to be ready to provide the details. Although for many senior leaders, they don't need us to go on and on and on. I had a client who told me that he was asked by his sales director to accompany him on an out-of-town visit, an out-of-town sales call to a company in the northeast part of the United States. And of course, my client said, oh, I'd be happy to do that. And so my client began to prepare for that meeting. Well, he put together a 50-page PowerPoint slide deck, 50 pages. The night before the presentation, my client and the sales director were having dinner. They were in this northeastern city in the United States going over the presentation. And the sales director said to my client, you know, I love your presentation. You've got all of the right stuff in that presentation And the only thing I would recommend is that you make slide 50, slide one in your presentation. Now, that really shocked my client. My client said, really? Now, you should know that slide 50 was the ask. Slide 50 was essentially asking for the business, summarizing it. My client felt that before doing that, you needed to talk about all of the other customers that you were working with talk about all of your patents, talk about your process, your methodology before asking for the business. The sales director said, look, I'm not telling you to do that. I'm just suggesting that you consider taking that slide 50 and putting it as your first slide. So the next morning arrived and my client and the sales director are in the room waiting for the CEO, who was the decision maker in this sales call to arrive. He did. And so my client got up to begin the presentation and he did take the advice of his sales director and moved slide 50 to the position of slide one in his presentation. He was just getting ready to finish that first slide. As he was finishing the ask, which was covered in that first slide, which was originally slide 50, the CEO raised his hand and said, I'll buy. Now, can you imagine what would have happened if my client would have kept that slide as slide 50 and taken 40, 45 minutes to get to that slide that caused the CEO to say yes? What might have happened? Well, certainly the CEO could have lost interest. The CEO could have said yes to an interruption when someone came in perhaps and said, I've got a call for you. Or worse yet, the CEO might have tuned out in the room and just waited until the presentation was over. And then he probably would have said, I'm not interested. So it's really important to set the expectation up front why you're there 
And there will be many times where simply asking will do the trick. Now, if the CEO, after the ask, after that first slide said, gee, I'm interested, please continue, you still need to have slides or you certainly need to have more of a presentation. Although perhaps the CEO would say, I've got a, I'm intrigued and I've got a question. Well, that question might be answered on your slide 11. So you just go right to slide 11. And then there might be another question. Well, that question might be answered on slide 43. So rather than simply giving everything we know about the subject, it's always preferable to let the client guide you so that you don't give them too much. And sometimes the more you talk, the worse it can get because you might say some things that end up trapping you. So sell the solution is the first strategy to keep in mind when you are trying to win others over and get other people to say yes. The second strategy is what I call answer the swift question, S-W-I-F-T. So what's in it for them? Too often we make our presentations all about us, why we need this what this is going to do for us or our team instead of trying to link our program or our proposal to an objective that the person we're speaking to already has on their list of objectives. So to the extent that we know what the person we're speaking to is already trying to accomplish in the next 90 days or in the next year, that gives us the opportunity to tailor our presentation in a way that shows this person that if they say yes to our request, they're actually accelerating the successful accomplishment of something that's already very important to them and that's already on their list of things they want to accomplish. So to the extent that we can do some research ahead of time, find out what this individual cares about, what are the top two or three issues they really want to deal with in the coming year. If we can show that what we're proposing is going to help them get what they want, it's almost a no-brainer. Why wouldn't they say yes to us if saying yes is actually going to help them achieve what is important to them already? So answer the swift question. Make sure that you link your ask to something that they already care about. The third strategy I call appreciate objections. When you think about a presentation or a one-on-one conversation with someone where you're trying to get them to say yes to you and they start talking about all the reasons this isn't going to work, often we can become frustrated by those objections We can get angry. Sometimes we just say, okay, then we're going to take our ball and go home. Be that way. These are not good or professional responses to objections. In fact, if someone is objecting, what else are they also doing? They're listening to us. They're engaged. We have their attention. You cannot object if you aren't paying attention, if you're not listening to what is being said. So if someone is objecting, what they're really seeking is additional information. They're processing what you're saying and they need some additional assistance in thinking it through. I want those objections when I'm making a presentation, whether it's to one person or whether it's to a group of people, because I don't want to get to the end of a presentation thinking 
that everyone is on board only to get a no because their objections were never voiced. I never heard their objections. They had objections. They just never shared them. And it might be because I wasn't inviting them to share their objections. One of the things I often do is talk for maybe three, four, five minutes and then stop and ask, what questions do you have about what you've heard so far? Or what are some obstacles you can envision in adopting this in your organization? So I am not afraid of the answers to those questions. I want to know if they think that something is going to block the successful implementation of what I'm trying to get them to say yes to. If I know what they're concerned about, that gives me a fighting chance of neutralizing that objection, of showing them how we have dealt with that in the past or how that really isn't as serious a block as they might think. So the more objections I get in a presentation, the greater the likelihood of success by the time I get to the end of the presentation because I will have understood what some of the potential reasons for them saying no are. And hopefully I have been able to deal with those objections in real time as I'm going through the presentation. Now, sometimes, of course, there are objections that are fatal. They catch us. They make us realize that we've got to go back to the drawing board. So we're not always going to be able to neutralize every objection. And at the same time, the more objections we can manage through and honestly work with our audience to show them how we can manage around that, the more success we're going to have in getting people to follow our lead. So don't be afraid of objections. Mine for them. Look for them. Invite them so that you can use them to help your audience see through them. The fourth strategy is do your homework. It's really important to have our ducks in a row before we engage someone in a conversation about them doing something that we're recommending. We need to be able to anticipate the most obvious questions that we might get. We want to rehearse our pitch. We want to perhaps give our pitch in front of some other people to maybe get some feedback on our tone, on the, the sequence of our points. Is it logical? Does it make sense? To the, to the people we're practicing and rehearsing with. Sometimes it might make perfect sense to us and not perfect sense to other people because we're sometimes too close to it. So it's important to make sure that before we go speak to someone, we have really thought through the details of our proposal. It's okay to say, I don't know the answer to that and I'll get back to you once, maybe twice in a presentation. If, however, we are saying that every five minutes, our audience is likely going to say to us or at least think, what are you doing in my office? Please come back when you know something about what it is you're trying to get me to do. The fifth strategy is listen. Too often when we are getting objections, we don't hear them, maybe because we don't want to hear them or because we're really not tuned in to the signals. And sometimes 
we actually will go someplace else when someone is objecting to us and we do something that I call reloading. This is where we are listening to someone disagree with us, object to some major points we're making, and instead of continuing to listen to them, our mind goes somewhere else where we're now preparing what we're going to say next when their lips stop moving. And all of us do this. If we're honest with ourselves, we can all think of examples of where we've left the room, Uh, not physically, although mentally, where we're trying to think of what we're going to say next. And the problem with that is that if we have left the conversation figuratively, if we're no longer paying attention, then we're likely to lose the thread of the conversation. And sometimes when the other person's lips stop moving and we then unload what we were reloading, they are likely to look at us and think, what are you talking about? That doesn't make sense. And that can be quite embarrassing and and also quite real because sometimes we lose our place in the conversation. And so what we do say after we rejoin the conversation is no longer relevant. So the best way to know what to say next in a conversation is to keep listening to what the other person is saying. When they stop talking, we will be able to respond. And we don't have to respond instantaneously. I think sometimes we are afraid of silence. We feel like we have to have a comeback immediately. We don't. In fact, there are some easy ways to buy the five to 10 seconds that our brain needs to be able to respond to what we just heard. We might say something like, you know, that is really interesting. Or, you know, let me, let me think about that for just a moment. Often that's all we need to then be able to respond convincingly with something that gets someone back in alignment with what we're trying to get them to to see. So the worst thing that we can do is leave the conversation. Not only is it disrespectful to the other person, it truly gets in the way of having the kind of conversation that leads us to mutual understanding and in getting to a place where we can work through those disagreements, those objections, which, as we've already said, are absolutely essential for being able to get someone to see that those objections really are not going to get in the way of success if they say yes to us. So remember to stay engaged in the conversation. Don't reload If you find yourself going someplace in a conversation, just bring yourself back. Don't beat yourself up over it. You don't have to telegraph it and let people know you're doing it. Just become more aware of the natural tendency to do this and refocus on the person or the group that you're speaking with. The sixth strategy is adjusting for communication preferences. So we all have different preferences for how we like to be communicated with. And there are a number of assessments that that we take over the course of our career that help us understand our different styles. There's the Myers-Briggs type indicator, which is a collection of 16 four-letter combinations that, that tell us a little bit about our personality. There's the DISC communications preference inventory that talks a little bit about 
whether we like to move more quickly or whether we're a bit more moderate in our pace, whether we're more task-oriented or whether we're more people-relationship-oriented. There's the Thomas Kilman conflict mode instrument, which reveals how we are when we are in disagreement with other people. The more we know about ourselves and about the people we're talking with, with regard to their preferences and their styles, the easier it's going to be for us to tailor our conversation around those preferences. So if we show up and treat people the way we like to be treated, that is not always going to work unless the person we're talking to is just like us. And there's a good chance the person we're talking to is not just like us. Let me give you an example of this using DISC, which again, looks at what preferences we bring when we are communicating with other people. There are some people who like to get right down to business. If you come into their office, they want you to get right to the point. They don't want you to waste their time. There are other people who like to talk a little bit about the weather or about the weekend. They want to have some warm-up, some chit-chat. Now, if these two people don't appreciate that they have different approaches, there is going to be a misalignment around communication style that could get in the way of the substance of the conversation. So if, let's say, you like to get right down to business, and I come into your office, and I start asking you how your weekend was, I see some pictures up on your wall from a vacation, and I say, oh, is that you? Is that a fishing trip you took? Eventually, the other person is going to ultimately look at their watch and say, excuse me, do you need something from me? I've got a lot of things on my calendar today. I'm a busy person. Because that person doesn't need the chit-chat and doesn't want the chit-chat. That person wants to get things checked off their list quickly, while the other person wants to get to know the person they're speaking with before they have a discussion about whatever issue is on the table. So it's important to know what the other person's communication preferences are so that you don't put yourself in a situation where there's this clash of style. Most communication impasses actually come from a, a misalignment around style as opposed to a disagreement over substance. We actually may be very close on the substance, and yet if you communicate with me in a certain way that puts me off, then I'm not even going to listen to what you're saying, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to also be thinking that you aren't respecting or honoring my style or my preference. So whether it's DISC, whether it's Myers-Briggs Type Indicator, MBTI, whether it's the Thomas Kilman Conflict Mode Instrument, the TKI, or any other psychographic assessment data, look for ways to understand how the person or the audience you're speaking with is different than you, and always try to tailor your conversation in a way that respects and appreciates the style of the other party. The seventh strategy, start with the end, is all about the way people process data and information. Roughly 60% of people are what we would term global processors. These are people who need the big picture first. 
If you just give them all the data, they're going to drown because they need a structure. They need a framework to attach the data to. So you need to start with the end in mind and you have to give them the overall position that you're suggesting that they adopt. And then you can give them the data. Now, 30% of us are what we would call analytic processors. Analytic processors actually love data. These are engineers, scientists, researchers. If you try to give them a hypothesis or you start with the end or you tell them, what it is that you're asking them to do up front before you give them the data, they're not going to be happy. They want to come up with the conclusion themselves. They want you to feed them all of the information and then that's how their mind works. That's what will lead them to the conclusion. The other 10%, we said 60% are global processors, big picture people, 30% are analytic processors, they're the detail people. The other 10% can go either way. So what we're saying here is that if you do not know the makeup of your audience, it's fair to assume that you want to start with the big picture because 60 to 70% of people on average are going to be global processors. And so it's always gonna be safer to start with the big picture. The eighth strategy is what I call present with passion. We need to show up with enthusiasm, with conviction, with excitement. It's not enough to have a great idea. We need both sizzle and substance. We know that if people show up with all sizzle and no substance, we see through that pretty easily. And we don't appreciate that. We don't like people who are just trying to show off or people who are trying to win us over by tricking us with their excitement. And sometimes people have really great ideas and yet if they don't ignite a spark in us, if they don't excite us, then even having the best idea doesn't successfully accomplish their objective because we just aren't listening to them. They don't grab our attention. So it's really important to have not only the substance, not only good ideas, it's also important to show up with some of that enthusiasm so that people want to listen to us. That enthusiasm, as we all know, is contagious. And if we show up and we don't have the excitement about our own ideas, how can we expect other people to be excited about our ideas? So remember to show up with some passion and some enthusiasm when you're trying to win others over. Number nine, tell them three times. This is all about the importance of repetition. Repetition is the best way for people to learn. Repetition is the best way for people to learn. I don't know if I mentioned that repetition is the best way for people to learn. Now, of course, I wouldn't say that three times in a row like I just did. Although over the course of a conversation, I will keep coming back to what it is that I want people to remember. Because sometimes when we hear something initially, it doesn't even register. It just goes over our head. There's no connection made. The second time we hear something, then our brain recognizes a pattern. Oh, I've heard that before. And so we pay more attention to it. The third time we hear it, it locks it in. Let me give you a quick example of this. I was looking for a new car several years ago 
went to the dealership, was looking around the showroom. I found a car that I liked. The only thing that was a bit odd about the car is it was a, a green car, an olive green car. I'd never seen green cars on the road before. And yet I liked the design of the car. And so I said to the salesperson, you know, I really like this car. I think I'm going to buy this car. And the salesman said, you know, I think that's a great buy. And of course, we'll get you a different color. And I said, no, I, I actually like this color. I, I think I'm going to go with this green color. I've never seen this color on the road before. So I bought the car, came back a few days later to pick it up, drove it out of the showroom onto the road. And what did I see everywhere? You got it. Green cars. Where did they come from? I'd never seen them before. And of course, they were always there. I just didn't have any context for green cars. Now that I owned one, I saw them everywhere. That is why repetition is so important. Our brains are wired to recognize patterns. And so when we hear something and then we hear it again and again, it's more likely to stick. So find a way to insert that, that consistent message, that consistent ask in your pitch, in your conversation, with whomever you're trying to win over. Finally, number 10. The 10th strategy is what I call follow up after the sale. So after we get a yes, often we think that it's a final yes. And sometimes it's not. Sometimes the person who gave us the yes, the decision maker perhaps, may still be open to appeals by others after he or she gives us that yes. And yet we might begin acting on that yes. We might start deploying resources. We might start actually putting people in roles to work on implementing whatever it was that we got the yes for. And yet, if someone else goes to talk to the decision maker later in the day and says, you know, I'm not really convinced that that was the best decision, I think there's a better way. The decision maker might actually say, well, well please tell me, what, what, what do you think? And the decision maker might actually end up changing his or her mind based on what this other person says to them. Now, if instead, right after we get the yes, we follow up, maybe we send an email, maybe we get on the phone, maybe we stop by an hour later and say something like, you know, I really appreciate your support on this. It was a great decision. By the way, we've already started implementation. This is going to be great for the organization. When you do something like that, you're actually inoculating the decision maker from those later appeals. It's going to be a lot harder for the decision maker to change his or her mind when they've received this reinforcement of their good decision. Just like you and I often will have buyer's remorse. If we go to the store and we buy something really expensive, we go home and we, th and we think, what did I just do? <laughs> this is going back tomorrow. Well, we don't always take it back tomorrow and we're less likely to take it back and return it tomorrow if someone calls us, maybe the salesperson, and says, you know, that outfit looks great on you. You are going to get so much use out of that. Or you look so great in that car, particularly that green. It really goes with your complexion. <laughs> so when someone comes back at us and says that we made a good decision and why, we are going to be emboldened by that and 
less likely to change our mind if someone tries to get us to go down a different path. So I hope that you will think about how you might employ one or more of these 10 strategies as you try to win others over. Remember that it's not enough just to have a great idea. We can often become legends in our own mind, which doesn't really get the job done. We always have to get the support of other key stakeholders, bosses, colleagues, customers, suppliers, if we're going to be successful in getting important things done. For more information about winning others over and how to be a fit leader, I invite you to visit fitleadersacademy.com, fitleadersacademy.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.